Welcome listeners to a new episode of the Case Podcast, another conversation about software engineering. In this episode, I talk to Adam Thornhill, author of Software Design X-Rays, You Code as a Crime Scene, and many other books, who I happen to talk to for the GoTo Book Club. They kindly allowed us to record and repost the full audio. There's also a video you can watch on the GoToBookClub website, which shows some of the visualizations we are talking about during this episode. I'm really looking forward to your feedback regarding this episode. Let's dive right in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the GoTo Book Club. Uh, I am Sven Johan. I work for InnoQ. I like improving systems. I like to talk about it. Um, I like to teach it. I like to write about it. And uh, today I have uh, as a guest um, Adam Thornhill. Uh, Adam, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, sure. Thanks, Sven, and thanks for having me here. So I'm Adam Thornhill. I'm a programmer and psychologist been working in the software industry for 25 years, and I spent uh, the past five years uh, building a platform called uh, CodeScene, working with code analysis. I'm also the author of a couple of books, and I like to think that the best-known books are Your Code is a Crime Scene and Software Design X-Rays. Yeah, actually quite an interesting uh, combination. How, how did it uh, come that you studied computer science and psychology? So uh, my experience was I started to work in the software industry in 1997. And after a couple of years, I kind of noticed a pattern that succeeding with software at scale is incredibly hard, right? I saw one software disaster after another. So at some point, I just want to try to understand why is it so hard to write good code? And I kind of decided to seek the answers within psychology because psychology, I think, has a lot to offer to us in our traditional technical field. You know, psychology is about how we think, how we reason, how we solve problems, and also how we collaborate with others. And uh, originally, I just signed up for on one semester, but, you know, psychology is really, really fun. So after that semester, I thought, like, okay, let's dive into one more topic and then one more topic. So I ended up spending six years at the university. So I took my degree by accident, more or less. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I did once a Coursera course, like an introduction to psychology. Uh, basically, it was only the, you know, the most famous uh, psychology cases. And it was also very fascinating. But um, yeah, it's, yeah, I stopped after, after one semester. So, uh, but yeah, nice. And I think, you know, this rare combination um, brought to me at least, uh, a totally new thinking about improving systems. So um, before I read your first book, uh, Your Code as a Crime Scene, um, I use tools like uh, like Zona. And, you know, I, I don't think that Zona is like a bad tool. I really like it. It's, you know, it helps you seeing um, uh, problems with your code, uh, but it makes it really hard to prioritize your work. You know, if, if you, if, if you run a, like a sonar analysis and it tells you, you have uh, 3 million findings and your technical depth is, uh, uh, three, uh, 2000 years, you know, it takes 2000 years to pay it back. It's, it's just not helpful. I have to invest a lot of time to understand what's really important. Yeah. And also the tool, even if I figure out what's important, the tool cannot really, cannot really help me. 
Um, but okay, that, that's uh, how we how we worked in the past. But then you know your your tool came along, and I think it made it really easy to to prioritize. And um, yeah, maybe maybe we should uh, talk about uh, yeah the the thinking about the prioritization uh, in that one. So you called the type of prioritization, if I'm, if, if I say that correctly, a behavioral a code analysis. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And it's uh, pretty much about uh, taking my psychology background and putting up top of the technical work that I do. So uh, the whole idea is that uh, I agree with you that static analysis to me, it's, it's also a valuable practice, right? It's something that works very well, I think, as a low level feedback loop when writing code. But static analysis, like you point out, has this, it has this property simply that it treats all code as equal, right? Because there's no such thing as a business priority when you just look at the source code. And that leads to having thousands of findings. So what I do instead is that I look at how do we, as a development organization, how do we interact with the code we're building? So in practice, that means looking at things like uh, version control data. You might look at things like uh, Jira data and so on. Because then you can kind of um, you can kind of calculate the impact of each one of the findings. So what that does basically is that it gives you a window into all those code quality issues and tells you that this is what's important and uh, this might be problematic long term, but we can most likely live with it for now. So that's like one of the things. The other thing that I kind of noticed uh, with static analysis is that once an organization grows beyond, I would say, just a handful of people then organizational factors like uh, coordination between different teams, team coupling, key personal dependencies, knowledge distribution, all that kind of stuff tends to become at least maybe even more important than any technical properties of the code. And static analysis was simply not designed to help us with those aspects, right? It's yeah. It's, yeah, exactly. So yeah, that, that was pretty much uh, where I decided to call it behavior code analysis. It's about more about the behavior of the organization uh, rather than the code. Um, when I tried to to prioritize, I also thought about our customers. You know, how many, uh, for, for example, um, uh, codes which is used very often or executed very often because of customer use is, would that also be part of an of an idea to prioritize uh, by by how customers are interacting with the system? I mean, it couldn't uh, could definitely be an aspect, right? So. Um... Yeah, typically, you know, software is interesting because it has uh, these power laws everywhere, right? And so you look at code and it's like uh, 80% of your code is never touched. You look at uh, your feature set and it's most likely the same thing, right? That most customers use a smaller subset of your features, right? Mm. So clearly there is a priority aspect there as well. For me, it was easy to convince, for example, a product owner to, uh, you know, for for improving codes when I could say, you know, this is part of the 80% usage pattern or something like that. Okay. Um, so, and then, um, I mean, you, you wrote the book, uh, uh, your code as a crime scene. And then, uh, and now you, you publish a new book, a software design X-rays. What, what was the new learning you had to, to write an, you know, a follow-up book? Yeah. So, uh, your code as a crime scene is a book I've wrote in, uh, 2014. And what I did back then was basically I captured a number of techniques that I had used myself in my previous life as a software consultant. So it's techniques for prioritizing technical depth to communicate with non-technical stakeholders. It's stuff that I found useful myself. So I published a book and it, 
get quite a lot of attention. And I kind of realized that uh, if I want these techniques to become mainstream, then there has to be some good tooling around them, right? So shortly after publishing that book, I founded uh, Codesyn, the company, to kind of build those tools. And as part of those early years with Codesyn, I was fortunate to work with so many organizations across the globe. So I worked with organizations on using different technologies uh, of all kinds of scale. And I learned so much about that. And I basically, with software design x-rays, to try to reflect those learnings. How well does this stuff work in practice? And even more important, how do you act upon it? Because information is only good when actionable. Yeah. So that was the main motivation. Yeah, that was, uh, also, I mean, I like a lot uh, about the book, actually about both books, but the, the software design x-rays, it, it's usually has a recommendation, you know, what to do with those uh, findings, but we can, we can uh, dive into that a bit uh, later. So the first part is, and you know, that's for me still the most fascinating, um, uh, uh part of your work, um, uh, is the hotspots and x-rays. So what is, what is a hotspot? So a hotspot is a complicated code that we also have to work with often. So it's a combination of uh, technical factors like uh, code quality issues, design smells, together with the uh, frequent development activity in that part of the code. So that's basically a hotspot. And uh, the whole hotspot concept, it came out of my experience of uh, using static analysis to try to prioritize findings. And like we spoke about earlier, I simply lack the priorities from the business side, right? And I also face these challenges of communicating with uh, non-technical stakeholders. Because very often I try to explain that, okay, uh, yeah, we the business presses for this feature, but maybe we should take a step back and improve what's already there so that we can implement it safely, right? And on time. And I found that those conversations, they were extremely hard to have because the uh, software, it simply lacks visibility, right? There's no way I can take my software system, pick it up and show it to my technical, non-technical stakeholders. So at the same time that I was wrestling with these problems, I was also in the middle of my psychology studies and I took a bunch of courses in forensic psychology. And that's where the hotspot concept actually came from. So I was inspired by a technique called geographical offender profiling. And you know, geographical offender profiling, it's something forensics use, right? So they, what you do is basically you look at the geographical distribution of different crime scenes in a city or in an area. And then you calculate mathematically our probability surface that can kind of help you predict what's the home base of the offender. So you know which area to patrol and supervise. And when I learned about that, I think something just kind of clicked because I kind of thought that, wow, what if we can do the same for software? You know, what if we can take this large software system, get the probability surface onto it and say that, hey, these are the parts of the code that are very likely to change in the future too. And these are the more stable parts of the code, things like that, right? Then we could suddenly, you know, we would get some real priorities on what needs to improve and where code quality is most important. So a very lengthy answer to a simple question. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, you, you do that by, uh, by uh, let's say, combining static code analysis and mining uh, software repositories. So uh, code, which, yeah, code which has a lot of commits and is bad, that's kind of problematic and we, we should uh, work on it. And yeah, I mean, it, for, for me, it's, it's so easy, uh, now to explain, 
let's say to to uh, let's say business stakeholders why this is important because technical debt you know you have you have t the metaphor technical debt it lacks a little bit with financial debt but still you you can say well we have an interest and we have a principle we have to pay back and you know what is actually the interest rate and you answer the question the inter interest rate on code which is so interest means i have to spend more time thinking on pretty bad code when I add a new feature because the code is not ideal for implementing the new feature. And, uh, and of course, if I have code, which is really bad and I have to change it quite often, the interest rate is very high. So, uh, to me, it really, to, it, it sticks, um, to, to my mind. Um, what, what is your experience with your, with your customers? So, uh, I mean, I'm only one single person who is doing it rarely, but you do it all the time. So does it, does that stick to, let's say, non-technical stakeholders all the time or rarely, or, you know, how, how, how does it work for you? Yeah. So uh, that, that's an interesting question. And, um, uh, the short answer is that I have a good experience, which is great. Otherwise I wouldn't have food on the table. Right. So. Uh, I'm kind of happy about that. And my experience is that non-technical stakeholders, because these techniques were originally, I kind of targeted engineering organizations and occasionally as a bonus, non-technical stakeholders. And my experience is that non-technical stakeholders, they like it because the hotspot analysis sends a positive message. It basically tells you that, no, you don't have to fix all technical debt, right? You have to fix this debt. That's really critical, but you can safely live with this technical debt. You need to be aware of it, of course, but you don't need to pay it down now. So it's a positive message for them because they're also wrestling with these long and short term, short term priorities. Like, uh, you have all these features that the business pushes for. And at the same time, there is some awareness that we need to improve things. Right. So I like to think that's the main contribution. Yeah, exactly. So it's, um, what you say, you can, you can improve. I mean, there is always something to improve. If, you know, if, if someone asks me, you know, if we have a software system to improve. Yeah. There are a, a gazillion things to do. The question is what's the, what brings the most value for your work? You know, because you always have, of course, um, uh, opportunity cost, yeah. And you know, if I if I improve this, I cannot improve the other thing. And yeah, it's. I think uh, the the hotspot analysis makes our not to do lists longer, and it shortens the the to do list. What you're also doing is you have um you have a trend analysis, and um, yeah, I like trends. You know, um, if, if you're good and you have, but you have a negative trend <laughs> that tells you, you have to improve something. Um, and also if, if the other way around, how do you analyze, uh, those trends? So how are you, how are you doing it? Yeah. So, uh, to me, trends are what makes all the data truly actionable, uh, because I very often meet organizations, they might be struggling with something like a legacy code migration or, uh, they have an existing system that they're earning money on. They need to continue to be able to maintain it. And you have this constant pressure for new features, right? So I always tell them that, you know, to manage technical debt, step zero, the absolutely first thing to do is to avoid taking on more debt, right? So simply put like a quality bar on what's already there and make sure it doesn't get worse, no matter where you start from. And I think that's, uh, again, something that resonates with, um, 
managers and technical leaders because I'm yet to meet anyone that tells me we want our code to get worse. You never hear that, right? So it's actionable. So that's the first thing. The other reason I like trends is because they carry so much more information than any absolute values. So for example, in CodeSyn, we have this uh, concept of code health, right? It's a metric that goes from 10, healthy code, code that's easy to understand, low risk, all the way down to one, which is code with severe maintenance issues. And let me say that I point you to a hotspot with a code health of five. Is that good or bad? Well, if that uh, hotspot had a code health of eight the week before, then it's disastrous, right? Because it degrades rapidly. It's something you need to act upon now. But on the other hand, if that hotspot had a code health of two the week before, then it's a dramatic improvement that needs to be celebrated, right? So trends carry this information, whereas absolute values don't. So when I used uh, a code scene, for me, it was like a, not a one-time thing, but when, when I see my first analysis, I'm like, okay, now I see the, you know, the, the red parts. So we, but we, you, you have those parts, which are, uh, bad codes changed often. And then, you know, to me, it triggers the thing. Okay. Um, all the red things, those are the ones which should be on my, uh, to-do list. But how do I see, let's say, um, parts, which are, uh, which are good, but they are getting worse and worse, but they don't show up like red on your, on, 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 you know, on any, on, on code seed. So how, how do, how do I figure out uh, negative trends, which are not horrible yet? If I remember correctly, I had uh, a chapter discussing this in software design x-rays. I think it's the last chapter where I talk a little bit about how you can use the trends as an early warning system. And I think this is really, really important. And uh, it's so important that we spend a lot of effort building it into CodeSyn as well. So we integrate with things like pull requests and build pipelines, right? So you can kind of get an alert when things like that happen. And I think it's vitally important because um, one thing I learned that actually surprised me was that I, I kind of I think, like to think like so many other in the software industry, we have this idea that code starts out fine, right? And then they will have the pressure of the business and the code kind of degrades over time. But that's not what's happening in general. What's happening in general is that if, if you find a module with quality problems, low code health, most likely those problems have been introduced very, very early on, often in the first version of that module. And once a module degrades in code, that's tend to be like a self-amplifying loop, right? Because the hurdle to refactoring is large. So instead we kind of squeeze in more complexity and more complexity and it gets worse and worse. So using this kind of information, you can actually set different quality gates and say that for new code, this is the minimum level of uh, uh, quality or health that we accept, right? And then you can use it as an early warning system, which allows you to prevent a ton of future problems. Yeah. So if, if the bad code is, I mean, to, to me, it's also surprising. That was a surprising insight from the book that bad code is more or less uh, from the beginning bad. <laughs> but you also wrote that a bad code um, usually stays bad. So, you know, it, it's bad, you fix it, but then it's coming, it's coming back. Why do you think that's the, that's the case? So I think there are several reasons, right? So it's one of the things I noticed earlier on shortly after writing your code as a crime scene when I started to work with this, when I started to work with organizations. 
And I kind of figure out that, you know, we found this really, really problematic hotspots. And then you start to look at the trends and you saw that these hotspots, they have been problems for years. And at first I kind of couldn't explain that. So why hasn't it been refactored? And there can be multiple reasons, but one reason that I think is very common is that those really problematic hotspots, there are some code quality issues that kind of tend to lead to organizational problems as well. So if you look at the different behavioral code analysis, you look at the main contributors and you look at how fragmented the contribution activities to that file. So you look at purely human perspective. And you will most likely see that that code is not written by one person. It's in a lot of organization, it might be, you know, written by 50 or 60 contributors. And what that most likely means is that, no, you don't have 50 people that know that code. You have no one that actually knows it, right? Uh, because everyone has their small piece of information and the original offers might long be gone. So it might often be that we don't really understand the problem domain well enough in that code. We might not understand the solution well enough. And that kind of, again, raises the hurdle for refactoring it. And in particular, we don't feel any kind of ownership for us as a team, right? So, and that makes us much, much less likely to invest the risk into refactoring it. So that's my hypothesis. I mean, what does it mean for an organization if I have that, you know, if I have many people working on the code, you said uh, it's, the problem is not well understood. Um, what are you recommending uh, companies to, let's say to fix that bad code, which is like not, not going away, you know, what, what can you do to, to, to make it happen that, that it doesn't come back? So I like to think that the, the single most important thing you can do is to get situational awareness so that everyone in the organization, engineering, business, everyone knows where the problems are, how severe they are and what they actually mean to the business. Because once you have that awareness, the next steps tend to be not easy, but doable at least, right? And then it, of course, depends on what kind of issues you have. So if you have things like, uh, so that's, that's another behavior code analysis technique that looks at something called system mastery, for example. A system mastery is not a technical property. It's about how much of the current code is written by the current team. Because I often see this as well, that social and organizational factors like system mastery tends to influence how we perceive the complexity of code. So we kind of tend to underestimate, to overestimate the complexity of unfamiliar code. And that means you can hear complaints about, hey, this piece of code is overly complicated. It's a mess. Whereas in reality, it might simply be that the team never had a chance to get onboarded properly and understand the domain and the solution. So if you know, if you have that situation awareness and knows what your actual problem is, uh, then you can also address it, right? When you, when you said, um, a lot of people, if, if, if a lot of people work on the code, um, that was also a finding, uh, that when you analyze all sorts of systems that, um, you have code, which is, let's say, rarely touched and that, uh, you know, that's, that's not a problem. Then you have code, which is often touched by only by uh, a handful of people, like one or two or three, uh, people. And then you have the code, which is changed often by many people. But also, um, you know, it's not immediately changed. It, it's, it's, it's changed from time to time, you know, and that's, that puts another burden, uh, uh, on it. If we have a mental model on the code, because we work very often with it, we usually, you know, don't introduce bugs, but if we rarely, uh, touch code, 
we are not 100% familiar with it. And then we introduce new problems. That was also something I found quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I definitely think that, um, it's a, it's a very common problem that I see that, uh, you get lots of contributors in a particular piece of code. And if that code is also hotspot, then the situation isn't particularly good because what it basically means is that even if I write a piece of code myself today, then look at it three days later and it looks completely different because, you know, five other people have been working on the codes. It, it's virtually impossible to maintain a stable mental model. So, and what's so fascinating about this is that very, very often it's about technical properties of the code that kind of lead to organizational issues. So what you will often see is that when you have that kind of code that attracts many different contributors, it's probably because it has good reasons to do so. It's typically a module that's very low on cohesion, meaning it has tons of different responsibilities. So consequently, different teams working on different features, they all end up in the same part of the code because it kind of ties everything together, right? So the solution there, it's a, it's a problem that you simply cannot solve with a reorganization because then you will introduce other bottlenecks, right? So the proper solution there would actually be a technical uh, refactoring or redesign, right? Which we kind of improve the organizational fit. And this is one of the things I found uh, fascinating myself. Okay. Um, yeah. Switching a, a bit, uh, the topic, um, going to the, to the X-ray. What, what is an X-ray? Yeah. So an X-ray is uh, basically a hotspot analysis at the function level. And the reason I started to develop the X-ray analysis was because after writing your code as a crime scene, when I analyzed all these systems, right, I kind of noticed that the hotspots that I tend to find that are most problematic, they're typically really, really large files. We can speak about, you know, it could be thousands of lines of code, uh, occasionally tens of thousands of lines of code. It can be extreme cases like that. And even if you can take that large system, you narrow it down to a single hotspot and say, hey, this is your biggest problem. If I go to a client and say that, you know, uh, rewrite this code, it's only 20,000 lines of code. They are not going to be happy, right? It's not actionable. So what an X-ray analysis does is that it takes that complex hotspot, parses it into separate functions, and then it looks at the Git log, where do each commit hit over time? And we kind of sum that up and you get hotspots at a method level. And that's what I've been using successfully as a starting point to, you know, prioritize refactorings in large complex classes and modules. Yeah. Yeah. If you tell someone uh, 20,000 lines of code class is a problem, they would say, well, you know, we figured that out <laughs> by ourselves. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's also, um, it's, it's used in many places. So if you, for example, Simon Brown uh, has the C4 uh, architectural model, and there you also have this kind of zooming or we, you know, Gernot Starke has uh, ARC42. We, we start from a, there we start from a very uh, abstract uh, view and then we dive always deeper. It's like, a, like Google Maps when you look at, you know, look at the map and then you can always go deeper and deeper. So you're not lost in details. You can navigate uh, quite nicely. And I think that's also, that's, uh, that's uh, quite a, a good idea. Yeah. You use very simple uh, metrics. So um, when, when I look at a typical tool like Sona, there are lots of metrics which tell me, you know, this, this is a problem. And um, you, I think you, you only use uh, lines of code of, of a class uh, or a method, right? And intention. 
from from lines. So no um, uh, uh, dependency analysis and uh, things like that. And this this is based on on some research. And I'm you know could, could you could you please uh, explain why you focus on very few uh, uh, um, metrics and why that's still super powerful? I like to think we evolved that a lot over the past years, but basically the thinking process is that if you look at the research, you will see that a simple metric like the number, number of lines of code, which it's, it's a horrible metric, right? It's really, really bad. The thing is that most other metrics are just as bad. And lines of code is intuitive. It's simple to calculate, simple to reason about. So that's basically where I started out that uh, we need a complexity dimension for hotspots. Let's use lines of code. And it surprised me how far that actually gets us, right? It takes us really, really far. Uh, one thing I learned uh, after uh, writing your code as Cramson is also that lines of code, it works well. It correlates with most other metrics. But I kind of also learned that um, at some point, you want to dig a little bit deeper and uh, provide some actionable advice around what type of refactorings do you need to do and stuff like that. So what I've been working on a lot over the past year is to add uh, different static analysis techniques uh, into a behavior code analysis via CodeSyn, right? And uh, what we try to do is to look more at the design level, like identifying uh, brain methods, uh, dry violations, you know, the, the stuff that really, really matters for maintainable code. So uh, these days I might still use the number of lines of code, like on initial visualization, right? To get situation awareness. But when I dig deeper, I typically use this more elaborate set of metrics. So I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I, I'm just wondering because my, you know, my understanding was when I look at a hotspot and I dive deeper, that um, that the hotspots show me. So there are distinct metrics. So when I do look at the hotspot, I look at um, lines of code and let's say a cyclomatic complexity represented by um, uh, intention. But uh, clone detection, uh, you know, violating uh, the try principle that I was not aware that this is uh, is also part of the hotspot. So, yeah, what, what is actually change coupling? Change coupling is a very, very interesting software analysis technique. It's interesting because it's something you cannot do just based on the source code. So if we talk about coupling in general, as a developer, we typically refer to coupling as some kind of dependency, right? You have some piece of code over here. It uses some piece of code over here. They depend upon each other. Change coupling is different because it's more about logical dependencies. So in a behavior code analysis, you measure how the organization interacts with the code they're building. So in change, change coupling, we pick up patterns in, it could be anything from the Git log to more advanced architectural analysis. We pick up patterns in, uh, Jira data and stuff like that and figure out that each time I need to modify a piece over here, I have a predictive modification in the module over here. So there is some kind of logical dependency between them. And using change coupling, we can get a lot of interesting feedback on how well our architecture supports the way we work with it. So that's the short description. Yeah, I mean, uh, we all uh, know the situation where we change, let's say, a piece of code, and then, um, ah, okay, now we have to change five completely different unit tests because of some copy-paste uh, coding. How does a change coupling relate to clone detection? 
basically the original challenge I had was that this was way before CodeSyn, way before I wrote the book. I was working as a software consultant, right? And I was working with a team that were very heavy on test automation. And the problem they had was that they got a lot of flaky tests, right? So this was automation at the system level, at the application level. And the problem was, of course, that as a developer, you kind of, uh, you pushed, pushed some changes, you updated some tests, and then you had three other tests failing because they kind of also depended upon some logic. Now, using change coupling, what we could do was we could first of all visualize the changes, right? So we could figure out that you make this tweak in the application code, and now we have to modify this whole cluster of files, right? So that could kind of highlight the problem. But to make it actionable, we wanted to drill deeper and figure out is the reason that we have this change coupling, is it due to dry violations, violations of the don't repeat yourself principle? And adding uh, copy-paste metrics on the top of this uh, proved to be really, really useful. And to me, change coupling is an excellent way of uh, benefiting from uh, clone detection tools and copy-paste detection tools. Because the main problem with copy-paste is that there's simply so much of it, right? So you look at the research and you see that there's like somewhere between five to 20% of all code out there is duplicated to some extent. And not all of that application is bad per se. So using change coupling, it kind of gives us a window into those massive amounts of duplicated code. And we can kind of figure out that, okay, these are the software clones that are actually expensive to maintain, right? Because we have these predictive modifications. I mean, you, you, you had it in your book. I mean, cl a clone a clone is not an exact clone, right? So there is usually you copy, um, you copy something and then you paste it and then you change this tiny uh, little bit. But of course, if one thing changes, you have to change all the, the rest. Clone detection tools also find those, you know, like half baked copy, I say copy paste, uh, edit, uh, pieces of code, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so I think that the clone detection in software is a, it's a pretty old technique, right? It's something that's been in industrial use for almost three decades. Uh, but again, I think that simply the, the, the sheer amount of duplicated code makes it very hard to act upon it. Because um, to me, I think one of the main problems with copy-paste is that we as developers, myself included, we are kind of conditioned to despise copy-paste. We have learned over and over again that it's a bad thing to do, right? The problem is that it's simply not true as a general statement, because uh, let's say that you have a piece of code here, right? You copy paste it. And now those, these two copies, they evolve in completely different direction. One could very well argue that copy paste was a good starting point, right? Or maybe you, you know, maybe you duplicate some code and you never need to touch it again. It might not be ideal, but is it really a big problem, right? So the problem starts when we actually have to make those, um, when it copy paste, when it kind of drives us our behavior in a negative direction, right? So we have to make those predictive modifications. It's easy to miss to update one of those clones, right? And um, that's why I think this combination of change coupling and the clone detection really, really adds value in our daily work. Yeah, I agree that it's not always bad. I I tend to, you know, do. Uh, first time copy paste edit, but when I do it the second time, then, you know, it's time to say, okay, now I need an abstraction because, you know, introducing an abstraction to, you know, for one time thing. Hmm. Dan North, uh, he once said, uh, you know, try is the enemy of the decoupled. That's something I, you know, I, 
I'm wrangling with and uh, but in, in terms of microservices, for example, or it doesn't even have to do microservices, just different, completely independent modules. When you see that, uh, no, whenever I change something uh, far over here, I have to change something far over there, even in a totally different uh, repository then things become a bit uh, proble problematic. And um, yeah, I wonder um, how do I find out if, you know, if I have a problem, because, you know, maybe I only have like this one-time thing, as you said, or, you know, I, you know, it, it's a, it's a real problem. How, how, how can I find that out? Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a very interesting question because I think the whole, um, the incredible hype behind microservices over the past five to six years kind of flipped the whole architecture and design thing around a little bit because uh, there are definitely scenarios where you want to violate uh, the dry principle because uh, loose coupling is simply more important, right? It's a more important capability than minimizing the amount of duplication. At the same time, what you want to avoid is uh, to have exactly the same behavior in two different places, if that's a behavior that's being frequently modified. Because if you have that, it could very well indicate that maybe you miss a microservice to take on that shared responsibility. That maybe it's a separate business capability, right? So uh, what I do, there are, there are two aspects to it. One is uh, getting the data. How do we figure out change coupling across Git repositories? The second challenge is uh, how do I act upon it? And I wrote about this in the book. So. Change coupling in simplest forms is based on uh, finding patterns in the commits, files that change together over and over again as part of the same commit set. And that clearly doesn't work across repositories. So what we do there is that um, you simply look at the ticket system instead. Things like uh, Jira tickets, Azure DevOps tickets, whatever, right? And see that if the commits reference the same ticket, then we know that they're kind of depending upon each other. And if it's happened often enough, then that's a very strong signal. So that way you can kind of, even across Git repositories, you can detect change coupling down to the function level, right? So this is something that's very powerful. And you can, of course, add clone detection on top of that as well. And then see, is this a dry violation that's desirable or is it an actual problem that we lack some level of encapsulation or abstraction? And what I would say is that to me, the, that's it's a hard engineering problem, right? But the, more challenging aspect is to make that decision, right? Uh, do we live with this or do we ignore it? And what I tend to recommend is I use a general heuristic that I call the heuristic of surprise. So I simply visualize the change coupling and then I take everything I know about the architecture and the problem domain. And any surprising coupling that I find is usually bad because, you know, surprise is simply one of the most expensive things you can ever have in a software architecture. Yeah, rarely people are positively surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always the you know don't make your manager being surprised because usually it's it's negative. But you you wanna you wanna show um, the coupling. So how how do you show the coupling? Is it? I mean, I remember from uh, when I looked at code scene and also when I remember the book. It's like I show two files, right? And then there is like um, the amount of coupling of those files and how often they change together, so to speak. So what's what's the, the thinking about this approach, you know, showing the files and the amount of coupling? 
Yeah. So the interesting thing with change coupling and a lot of those other behavior code analysis techniques that we talked about in the previous episode, like hotspots and that kind of stuff is that they scale at different levels. So you can use change coupling at the function level, right? You can use it at the file level and you can use it at an architectural level. And that's where I usually start when I pick up a system. I look at the different architectural elements and uh, they could be either different layers, they can be different components, or they can be microservices. And I'll simply figure out the change coupling between, let's say, the different services, right? So I typically visualize it. You have uh, all your services like a wheel, and then you see the connections between those edges. And that's usually my starting point. And uh, in my experience, because I've been fortunate to work with so many organizations across the globe at all kinds of scale, and I see several organizations are doing really, really good job with it, but occasionally there is a surprise. And the surprise is very often that um, even though you put all these efforts into defining proper service boundaries, right? We know about boundary context, domain-driven design and all that stuff, right? But the thing is that it's incredibly hard in practice because we basically have to be domain experts to do that, right? So the surprise tends to be that, hey, we're actually starting to build a distributed monolith, right? It's very easy to highlight that with change coupling that uh, when you change this service, right, you have a dependency to five other services. And then you look at the details, what kind of functions are coupled. And you often see that uh, you implement a new capability here on your business capability. And to pull that off, you need to query two different services and update the state in a third one, right? So that's the typical warning sign that I tend to find. Mm. I can have from time to time, let's say, this coupling. You know, as we said, you uh, maybe we have uh, two code clones in two different services, and then um, okay, we we change it once, and that's fine. You know, it it just happened once, and that's probably not a problem. If we if we change it a second time, a third time, a tenth time, one hundred one hundred percent of the time, uh, we 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 change those. Um, files together in different services. Is there any, let's say, recommendation when I should start uh, worrying about those uh, temporal dependencies? So uh, I find it very hard to give uh, general recommendations in this uh, area because with hotspots, it's usually quite easy, right? If you work on a part of the code a lot and that part of the code has a high degree of technical depth, then uh, it's very easy to say that, okay, we need to fix this, right? But with change coupling, it's so much harder because it kind of depends on the life cycle of the code base, right? If it's something you just got started on, there's probably going to be a lot of experimentation and learning going on. So I do expect a higher degree of change coupling and more complex change coupling, right? But uh, I would say that anything beyond, let's say, um, in a more stable system, right? Once the basic architecture is set, I would be worried about any change coupling that's over 20%. That would worry okay. me. Okay. The, the other heuristics I use is basically that change coupling gets more expensive with the uh, distance. And what I mean with distance is, first of all, architectural distance. Like, uh, are these two completely unrelated parts in theory, but in practice tied together? Then that might very well be one of those surprises. The other one is um, dependencies that cross team boundaries, right? Because that very quickly becomes expensive because the teams end up in... Uh, in all these coordination meetings, and they might have conflicting changes in their API and stuff like that. Yeah, I can sing a song about uh, those kind of problems. Um, I think if you have different repositories and one team is responsible for that, okay, you know, it's not it's not nice. 
Um, but it's still, let's say it's manageable and, um, it's also, I would say it's also easy to fix because, you know, it's one team, you know, just a couple of people own the different repositories and can think about, uh, reducing or getting rid of that, uh, uh, um, uh, coupling, but uh, across teams, I, you know, that, that's, that's going to be uh, tricky. So what's. What, what are some interesting examples from uh, from uh, your experience uh, uh, on on that problem? Oh, I have so many. I'm not even sure where I should start. So uh, I think one of the most common issues I've seen, and th this used to be more common maybe a few years back, like two, three years ago, was that um, several organizations that I worked with, they kind of asked me, like, uh, how should we organize our development teams, right? So we... Uh, we started out with component-based teams, right? Then we we noticed that we had very, very long lead times, right, for new features because you had to do these handovers all the time between change couple components. So we changed to a feature team, and uh, now we kind of noticed that our whole quality aspect just went uh, south, right? Because uh, suddenly we find that we have ten different teams all working in the same parts of the code. So to me, the it's a much harder answer because uh, the organizational aspect always goes hand in hand with the software architecture, right? So you need really, really need to balance these two. And if you want to have component teams, then I think a much, much better approach is what the team topologies people recommend, right? With stream aligned uh, teams. That's the only way I've found that uh, actually scales, that you have uh, the teams separated based on business capabilities, right? And that those business capabilities are reflected in the architecture. I really haven't seen anything else that works at scale. Yeah, I was about to say, um, in, in the Team Topologies book, uh, they um, yeah, they have this quote from, I believe, Ruth um, Malan. If it, there is the software architecture, but there is also the communication architecture. And it, basically on, you know, Conway's law. And if, if you don't care about, if you as an architect don't care about team setup and communication structure between teams, basically you give the architecture tasks to someone who cares, like a non-technical manager, right? And then you, 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 you end up in those problems, uh, you, you described. Is there, is there a way how to, you know, use the, those insights on a change coupling on a, let's say on based on different teams working on the same code base uh, to, let's say, to refactor teams towards those streamlined teams? Uh, yes, there are. And uh, I like to think this is one of the most uh, important contributions by um, behavior code analysis and software design and x-rays and what we do with codes in as well, of course, it's that... Uh, it brings visibility to the people side of code. And uh, to me, you know, I always talk about this, like the grand tragedy of software design, that the organization that builds the code is invisible in the code itself, right? So using behavior code analysis, you can actually visualize that. So you can show which team works where in the source code, right? And you can overlay that with change coupling information so that you can easily show those bottlenecks, right? That when we modify this service here, that team have to coordinate with four other teams, right? You can visualize that. And from there, it's mostly about um, domain expertise to figure out, okay, um, quite often it's not enough to just shift the teams around. Quite often you have to do some more fundamental change and maybe those two different services or component, maybe they are actually the same component, right? So you need to merge them together. 
And occasionally you find that the organization simply lacks a team to take on a new responsibility. It's kind of, let's say, the same um, yeah, pattern maybe we, we discussed the last time. So the last time, uh, um, you know, the, the hotspots actually create a not-to-do list. You know, it's you have so many problems, but, but with the hotspots, you get a, a focus on the problem. And here we would have the same. If you, if you need to think about um, your team setup or your team topologies, to use the word, Basically, you know, I can look at those parts where uh, many teams own a lot of co uh, the same codes, and also where are you know where, where are teams actually quite distinct from each other in the code base. And I can use that one, like the problematic parts, to to look at uh, you know where do we need to create better boundaries, team boundaries. Yeah, and I think that's important because uh, the moment you're able to visualize that, then you can start to have a meaningful conversation between. Uh, engineering and the business, right? Because in my experience, even with organizations that have a fairly high degree of team autonomy, right? Uh, a team can usually not decide that uh, they can decide what they want to do. They can uh, decide what they want to do differently, but they cannot decide for the whole organization, right? We need some kind of buy-in and being able to show that data really, really helps in my experience. If you just say you have a problem or you have a feeling, usually people don't uh, react to it. Yeah, in your book, um, you describe that uh, you can test your architecture, you know, the, the let's say, architecture in terms of dependencies on teams. Like if, if you implement a new feature, how many, you know, how many people do you need to bring in one room to find out how, let's say, good or bad your 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 real dependencies are, e either your hard dependencies or your soft uh, dependencies. So if, if I want to implement a new feature and I have to call like a big uh, stuff event, I obviously have a problem. So what's, what's your experience with, um, with those tests when, when you do those tests with your, with your clients? So, uh, my experience is that it's very easy to end up uh, doing local optimizations, right? So organizations always, they always know themselves that, hey, we have a lot of coordination meetings. We have a lot of sync meetings, right? And what typically happens is that many organizations tend to stuff additional ceremonies on top of that, right? So we have a problem with uh, sharing information, for example. So let's do additional uh, information sharing meetings. Let's do additional status meetings so that everyone involved is up to date and stuff like that. And in my book, that's basically just a way of kind of uh, covering up the symptoms, not the real root cause, right? Because you really do want to keep coordination and meetings to a minimum. And the only way of doing that is to make sure that each team can operate auto autonomously, right? So that they can have this fit between an organizational unit and the actual architecture. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I, I feel the pain already. Uh, I've been in, let's say, co meetings only with coordinators, and we were like 60 coordinators where you think, you know, this cannot uh, possibly be true. We also have like in a, in a supplement material, of course, uh, like screenshots, how, you know, how you, how you visualize uh, those dependencies between teams. And it's, I have to admit, um, when I, let's say, when I talk about code scene, I used to talk only about hotspots and I totally ignored, uh, that feature. So it, it seems to me that it's even, you know, it's, it's a more important, Feature or yeah, is it more important? I don't know, but to me right now it feels like uh, 
it's something you should you should use in each and every project to really reduce your your team dependencies yeah and i find it fascinating particularly if we talk about stuff like microservices right where we're very very heavy upon uh, measuring all kinds of things right we're measuring performance we're measuring uh, scalability and all that stuff we have an alert system right but then we have these other architecture properties that are so important like loose coupling independent deployability autonomous teams and we are not really measuring that, right? So that's where I think behavior code analysis can kind of fill that gap. And, uh, you know, it can work like a monitoring system, like an alert system for the architecture. And that's the way I've been using it over the past couple of years. And I have a very good experience with that. And if, let's say, even alert uh, triggers, um, what's, what are the typical steps to, let's say, fix the problem? So what actually surprised me the most, because it was so unexpected for me, that was that a lot of those um, problematic dependencies between different teams or coordination bottlenecks, very, very often the fix turned out to be technical. It's something we got wrong either in the high-level design or in the architecture, right? We stuffed too many responsibilities into one module, and now multiple teams have a reason to touch that module, right? Or maybe we do have a very modular architecture, but it's the wrong granularity on it. Maybe it's the, the wrong modeling concepts that we use. And very often it turns out that uh, as software architects, it tends to be very common that we identify technical building blocks and we kind of build our architecture around that. And that's like more or less asking for heavy team coupling. Yeah, ah, I like that. Little code changes to fix big problems. I mean, yeah, little, but you know, uh, Usually, if you have, uh, you know, I'm currently in a project with, let's say, 300 people, and it's incredibly hard to, let's say, without a data visualization on the coupling, to have a meaningful conversation. Yeah, and I think that even minor improvements at that scale have a big, big payoff, right? Because uh, imagine just the, you know, just the stuff costs of 300 people, right? If you can say 1%. Uh, that can be quite some uh, party, right? For the yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, I mean, coordination meetings with 50 people uh, every once in a while, you know, why not uh, analyze the code base uh, instead? <laughs> you could almost buy a private jet for that money you save, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, from my perspective, I could have uh, many more questions, uh, but um, yeah, maybe let's close it uh, here. Thank you, Adam, for, for the conversation. I can really recommend not only reading your book, but also check out the tool. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. A pleasure.